Amen. Amen. Well, have a seat. And um, I've decided that uh, we need to up the dress code around here. So, um, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I think I've worn a suit coat. This is my third time or fourth time. So, yeah, I know Elaine likes that. So uh, I'm glad that I could accommodate. And uh, here we go. Revelation chapter 11. Well, I'm afraid that uh, we, what we're doing is, um, well, I don't know, I, I can't speak for all of us, but I just get a sense that maybe we're treating this too academic. Of course, this is, we want to know what, the, the, what it says and what the program is, especially from the view uh, that we hold, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, pre-tribulation, rapture, uh, a dispensationalist, uh, premillennial, all that sort of thing, futurist. Yes, these are great things with all the charts and all of those sorts of things. But don't forget that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. So the curtain is being pulled back. And we're able to peer into it by the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Into what the program is that the Lord has set up through his son, Jesus Christ. Giving him all judgment, the Bible tells us committing judgment unto him. And so we're seeing here uh, what we've been born into. You ever thought that? We've been born into the family of God. If we've surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ and counted on his finished work at the cross and resurrection, we're in him and he's in us. How intimate is that? And now we're getting a peek into what's coming for our whole eternity. So I don't want us to just be treated as academic. I want it to be uh, worshipful as we uh, move through chapter 11. Well, there's two places I think you, we should probably read before we get into chapter 11. And the first one that I've, I'll have you read for the, probably the 10th time now <laughs> is uh, found back in Daniel 9. Why don't you flip over there and we'll just read there just to remind ourselves that there is a seven-week and 62 weeks, a 69-week uh, period that has already happened. And there's a 70th week that has not happened. And we are currently in the book of Revelation in the 70th week of Daniel. We're in chapters 6 through 19, which is when God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. And deals with the nation of Israel, as he said he would. God's not done with the nation of Israel. And yet, uh, we are here in this 70th week. And I want to just read verse 27. You can read this, and we're uh, going to hit this soon as we move through the Old Testament. But verse 27, then he, who's he? This prince, this coming prince, this antichrist, is going to confirm a covenant with many for one week. And remember, the week there is a seven-year period. He's going to confirm a covenant with many for one week. And the, guess what that does? That kicks off the seven-year period of tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel. Or in Jeremiah 30, it's also called the time of Jacob's trouble. That covenant, that peace covenant, that covenant that he makes... Most people believe uh, from some other places and things that this is a uh, Middle East peace uh, covenant that uh, astounds the whole world, you know. And 
most people then take it one step further than that and surmise. It's not necessarily in the Bible, but it does make good sense that what would it be, logically, that would establish peace in the Middle East? Well, one of the things that uh, uh, um, is suggested, even by the next uh, portion of this scripture, is that this Antichrist somehow, this person, this statesman, this amazing statesperson, comes on the scene and allows somehow the Temple Mount to be built, or excuse me, the temple to be built on the temple mounts. Sorry about that. The temple, the one that is no longer currently there on the temple mount. Let's talk about that for a minute, okay? Because this is key to the understanding of what we're about ready to study. How many temples have there been? Two or three, depending on how you look at it. In the time of Solomon, remember, David wanted to build God a house but he couldn't because he was a man of war. So what did David do? He didn't, by the way, he didn't run away and cry because God didn't give him the ministry that he wanted. No kidding. No kidding. He didn't. You know what David did? He said, oh, I can't build the house. Here's what I'll do. I'll gather up all the money and resources and tools or whatever the, uh, to build the house when Solomon gets ready to build it. Isn't that beautiful? He didn't sulk. He just went on in his ministry. That's neat. Well, anyway, he builds it, and as you know, <laughs> that temple was wrecked. You know that, right? That temple was wrecked. Solomon Temple was gone. When was it gone? Anybody know? When was Solomon's Temple gone? Well, you should know because you've been going through First and Second Kings with me and also the book of Isaiah. In 586 B.C., finally, uh, the Babylonians came and just wrecked Jerusalem, including Solomon's temple. Remember that? Well, uh, after this, uh, uh, Zerubbabel, and I'm so excited. We're getting ready to study this in the Old Testament on Wednesday nights after Revelation's done. We're going to skip over uh, First and Second Chronicles because it's a repeat. And then next time we go through the Old Testament, we'll do First and Second Chronicles and said First and Second Kings. And we're going to come to what? Ezra and Nehemiah. The rebuilding of the city and the rebuilding of the wall and the rebuilding of the temple, right? So anyway, Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple in around 536 B.C. He rebuilds it. That's the second temple, right? Okay, well, uh, I guess you, you could say, some people do say it this way, there's a third temple, but it wasn't really a real third temple. In about 20 B.C., Herod, who loved to build things, saw that the temple, the current Zerubbabel temple, wasn't as big as Solomon's temple, so guess what he did? He renovated it. He made it bigger, and he made it more ostentatious. And some people call that the third temple. But whatever, first or second uh, temple, you, you understand that. Well, what happened to that temple? And this is important for your understanding and for church history. Not 20 uh, B.C., but now you go forward now, 90 years to 70 AD, and the Romans came into, this is a very important uh, point, the Romans came into Jerusalem and wrecked that temple. And guess what? There's no temple there this day. In fact, I put a picture up in our Calvary Chapel uh, Facebook page here earlier today, just a little bit before tonight, and I showed you the Temple Mount. And what's on there is not the temple. But there's 
a couple things on there. There's more than a couple, but the two main things that are on there is the Al-Aqsa Mosque, that's at the southern end, and then the Dome of the Rock, the Dome of the Rock, the golden thing that you always see right there up on the Temple Mount, right? Well, that one was built, I think it was about 600 B.C. It was built, uh, this is fascinating, uh, to commemorate Muhammad's ride on his stallion to the Lord. That's kind of what that is. So really, the mosque is not that, although some people call it a mosque. It's more of a memorial. But what's really fascinating about this, okay, so you get the point. There's, there's no temple, and there hasn't been since 70 A.D. There's no temple. Okay, what's fascinating about that Dome of the Rock, which is right in the middle of the Temple Mount, okay? You, you, everybody tracking with me? Temple Mount, Jerusalem, there's a Dome of the Rock and there's a mosque. You can see both if you go with us. You'll see it, Lord willing, uh, we can go again. Uh, but what's fascinating about that Dome of the Rock is there is some jagged rocks that kind of are inside of it that come up out of the Temple Mount. And many people believe that right there is where the Temple Mount, the temple, all the temples were built. You understand this? And so what would happen, really, uh, uh, I know I'm going in circles, but just, just bear with me. In 1967, you know, uh, Israel took, retook Jerusalem, and for some unexplained reason, the uh, leader of Israel at the time didn't take that Temple Mount area and left it to the Muslims then to have their, their two and actually more than two edifices there, their, their buildings. Well, anyway, there's also uh, something that's to the north on the Temple Mount, it's uh, uh, called, uh, it's like a gazebo structure. It's more looks like a gazebo, okay? And it's called uh, the Dome of the Spirit or the Dome of the Tablets. And you know what's fascinating? And uh, this will, this uh, I'm speaking uh, in, in a round circular way, but it'll make sense when we come to the end at uh, 8.15. It has to be 8.10 now. I told Sarah it'd be 45 minutes. But anyway, is that instead of um, uh, a man-made stuff there that, that's the floor, there's bedrock Flat bedrock, not jagged rock, flat bedrock inside the 100 meters to the north, little gazebo, dome of the um, spirit or dome of the tablets. Isn't that fascinating? Untouched bedrock. Get it? You understand what I mean? Okay, now file that away because that's going to be germane to the sermon, okay, or the teaching. Well, if you go back to Daniel, all this from Daniel. One little verse, half a verse. It says, but in the middle of the week, in the middle of the seven-year period, at three and a half years, who? He, the Antichrist, is going to bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. Which means, folks, in the middle of the tribulation period, if there's going to be an end to sacrifice and offerings, there's got to be a temple. There's got to be a temple. And so many believe... That this is the way he solves the Middle East peace crisis, is he gets the temple built up there. Okay? Well, 
He shall bring an end to sacrifice, and in the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. If you go to our Lord's uh, Olivet Discourse, he actually says, he calls something an abomination of desolation that occurs right at the midpoint of the tribulation period. And what that is, is that the Antichrist is going to fool, we think, the Jewish people into believing he's this amazing statement, statesman and then all the world. He's going to make this pact. He's going to possibly get a new temple built up there. And then three and a half years into the tribulation time, the 70th week of Daniel, Jeremiah's trouble, he's going to set himself up in the temple and say, worship me. And that's where the mark of the beast comes in later in Revelation. You must do what I say and take this and have this mark, which is a real counterfeit because as we saw a couple weeks ago, right? What do the people of God have on their forehead? The name of God, the seal, the name of God. We're sealed people by the Lord. Even if you can't see something right here or not, the Lord can see it. Isn't that beautiful? Okay, so that's one place I want us to read before we begin. See how this is happening. It's turning into a nightmare for time, but that's okay. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You've read this, haven't you? Look in verse 2. Well, let's just begin at one. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or trouble, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as through the day of Christ, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or uh, that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. You see what his purpose and plan is here? As he's empowered by uh, the enemy of our souls, here he's going to set himself up. So now let's file those two away, have them as a backdrop, and then go to the book of Revelation. We are following the divine outline. And really, folks, if you follow the divine outline from a futurist perspective, Revelation is not a hard book to understand. I'm copying that from another pastor, but it's true. It's not a hard book to understand. And we're following uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. We're following the divine outline. And we currently find ourselves uh, uh, in the place of the tribulation, chapter 6 through 19. Let's run through it again because I want you to remember it. Let's run through it again. Chapter 1 is where we see the glorified, resurrected, Je resurrected Jesus Christ, which is write the things you have seen, John. Glorified, resurrected Jesus Christ. Then write the things uh, which are, chapters 2 and chapter 3, the churches, the seven churches. And we talked about that at length. It can represent so many different things. The churches that existed that he was writing these to, but also church history and other things, right? We remember that. And then uh, write uh, the things we've seen. And then the things which will take place after this. Always remember it. It's meta tauda. 
And what is meditata? Well, you jump right to chapter 4 and you see after these things. After what things? The church age. We're currently in the church age. But chapter 4 and chapter 5 gives you a glimpse into what we'll be doing in heaven as the, um, uh, as the bride of Christ raptured into heaven while the tribulation's going on. And we studied that. And now we're all the way through. We've gotten to the seventh seal. The seventh seal unlocked the seven trumpets. And we are almost to the place of the seventh trumpet. We'll do it tonight, Lord willing. And the seventh trumpet unleashes the seven bowl judgment or unlocks the seven bowl judgments. Okay, everybody tracking? Here it comes. Let's read, or read verse 11, or chapter 11. After we know now, we had this amazing little interlude and the interlude continues where John was asked to eat this little book. It was both sweet and bitter. And boy, is it. Nothing like the word of God can cut you to the quick in the best way possible. Is that right? When you need an attitude adjustment, don't go here or go there. Go to the word of God. Right? It can do it so well. He can do it so well through his word. But it's also when we're down and low. And we need to pick, uh, pick up and encourage the grace of God and the mercy of God. Woo! The sweetness of these things and the joy of the Lord can be our strength. And we talked about that last week. Okay, here we go. So he eats this little book through uh, interaction with this mighty angel. And we come now to these two witnesses. Here it goes. The word of the Lord. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God. The altar and those who worship there, but leave out the court which is outside the temple and don't measure it for it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. How many years is that? As I think it's three and a half years. I'm not good at math, so help me out. And I will give the power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days. Again, I think that's three and a half years clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Man, do we need to know the Old Testament. I'll just leave it at that till we get back. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Who's that sound like? And they have power over waters to turn them to blood. Who's that sound like? And to strike the earth with all plagues. Sounds like somebody I know. And as often as they desire. Now, in verse 7, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. Let's just get this over. The beast there is the Antichrist. Will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Listen to that. Jerusalem called Sodom and Egypt. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nation will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. Fascinating. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. Sickness, right? 
make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Did you catch that? The prophets tormented the ones who dwelled on the earth. What were the prophets doing that tormented the people of earth? We'll talk about that in a minute. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud. And their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. And the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and give glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Remember, there were three woes, the last three uh, uh, trumpets, and that was found in chapter 8, verse 13. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Here's what the third woe is. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Sound familiar? You sing that at Christmas. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and a great hail. Now, when was the temple destroyed? 70 AD. Now, this is important for you to know. I've told you this a million times, but know it. When did John write this? Don't believe that he wrote it in the 60s or the 50s. He wrote it in 96 AD. Which means the temple had already been destroyed. Right? You track it with me? And the Romans, as long as you didn't mess around, they were okay. But if you messed around and upset their deal, their apple cart, their system... I mean, they ruled with an iron fist, right? And John apparently got into trouble with them, and he's found himself in a work labor camp on the island of Patmos. And listen, this is a vision, and we do like to have our charts and graphs, and we like to argue against other people with uh, uh, different positions than us. But John is writing to people who need comfort and strength and resource. And here he comes right out of the gate in chapter 11. When I was given a reed like a measuring rod. So to you and I, we want to figure out what the reed is. Probably bamboo. But this was a long rod. But what this means is when, people are, uh, when things are measured in the Bible, it denotes ownership. When you, you could study it. I could give you the references. When he talks about measuring... It's like, like, listen to, listen to this. I don't go to Kelly's house here with my architect and my contractor and say, you know, I'd like you to uh, measure this because I want to put in a, uh, you know, a refrigerator or a deck. You know why I don't do that? I don't own the house. But when I measure it, my house, it's because I own it. <laughs> and same with all of you. 
If you've built your house, you know what you're talking, you know what I'm talking about. It's your house. That's what this denotes here. It's ownership. Now think it through. The Romans are destroying or, you know, uh, persecuting the Christians. And there's a lot of tension and all that. And what John or what God is giving John is, listen to me, John. I want you to tell all the people this in the vision. I own this place. I want you to go and measure. What do, you, what do you mean? Well, where? What? I want you to go and measure the temple of God. I want you to go up on the temple mount. I want you to measure it. In other words, he says, I own it. John, there are going to be some tough things that happen here. You've already seen, I think the Lord's saying, people have died. People have rejected the Lord. It's sad. That's bitter. But there is sweetness. And I want you to know, whatever happens, John, I want you to tell the people, I own it. Because difficult things are coming here. So he's given a reed like a measuring rod. And he says, to the, the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God. God's telling John through the angel, etc., I own that area. The temple is mine. So what does this presuppose? This means if there's a temple, and I showed you in Daniel 9, that a temple has to be built sometime. Now listen, there are a lot of people in the world, in the Christian world, who spiritualize this temple. They don't believe it's a literal temple. They believe this is the church here. But let me just read you some things. I already read it to you in Daniel 9.27. In the midst of the week, Daniel says, there's going to be, uh, you know, he's going to cause the sacrifice and the offerings to cease. Well, in order to have sacrifice and offerings, there has to be a temple, right? That's the only place that the Jewish folks can do it. How about this? There's the testimony of Jesus. Listen to this. The Lord thus endures, uh, excuse me, uh, he speaks of the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet as standing in the holy place, Matthew 24, 15. And then he says, for then shall be great tribulation. He talks about a temple, folks. And the testimony of Paul in the second Thessalonians 2, 4. I said it to you. After we've been gathered unto him, this man of destruction or man of sin is going to set himself up in the temple. Folks, this is a real temple. It's a literal temple. There's going to be a temple during the tribulation period. When and how is it going to be built? I don't know. But it's going to be there. And one of the great things, uh, I don't know if great things, that's not the right way of saying it. One of the interest. there you go. One of the interesting things is that the Jewish people believe that when Messiah comes back, the first thing he's going to do is what? Build the temple. So do you see how there's this perfect storm for the Antichrist to rise and act as amazing statesmen and to fool lots of people? You see it? So it's a literal temple. And he says, rise and measure the temple, the temple of God. Rise and measure this, right? But then he says this fascinating verse. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and don't measure it. For it's been given to the Gentiles. 
It's been given to the Gentiles. Now, you know this, right? There's a temple, and then there's courtyards around the temple. And if you adhere to the theory that most people adhere to for all these years, it's called the central theory. They believe that the temple proper, the actual brick and mortar of the temple, is right in the middle of that golden dome area which would cause unbelievable stress and strife, and there's hardly any way that you could see that anybody could solve that problem. But how about this? In the late 18, or excuse me, 1980s, late 1980s, this is a fascinating, another guy who studied the Temple Mount, his name's Dr. Asher Kaufman, he's still alive, you can go out. By the way, this theory, of course, of course this theory, since it's come out, has many holes have been poked in it. Many people have criticized this theory, but his theory is called the North Theory, the Northern Theory. In other words, his theory, for lack of a better phrase of way, uh, running you through all the science of what he says and all the, the measurements of what you says, remember that I told you that there was the dome of the spirit and the dome uh, of the tablets? It's like a gazebo-looking place. Dr. Uh, Asher Kaufman believes that the temple structure itself is right on top of that bedrock that's inside of that, uh, of that gazebo, of that dome of the, of the rock, which is 100 yards or meters, excuse me, north of where the dome of the rock is. Now, why am I going through all of this? Well, he has a lot of reasons. I will spare you the reasons. I'm just going to give you the theory, okay? You can go out and research the reasons. He gives you a lot of reasons why he thinks that's the area, one of which is it's got bedrock, flat bedrock, but other things. Well, by the way, what's to the east? You have a perfect line right to the east. It's the eastern gate. When Jesus comes back, where is he going to come back to? Through the eastern gate. Guess what's happened to the Eastern Gate currently? It's been cemented in by the Muslims, as if that's going to keep the Lord out. So this uh, Dr. Asher Kaufman has come up with a northern theory where he believes that the temple mount or the temple proper is actually 100 yards north of the Dome of the Rock, which means the temple could be built and coexist on the same spot or the same mount as the Dome of the Rock. Except, guess what wouldn't fit? The court of the Gentiles. But guess what the Lord said? You don't have to measure that. Isn't that fascinating? Now that's something for you to investigate. Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. By the way, did you notice he said, and those who worship there? He, he owns... And then leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and don't measure it, for it's been given to the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. Isn't that fascinating? And they're going to tread the holy city underfoot for this last half of the three and a half years, or that tribulation period. And but, but, or and, the Lord says in verse 3. Because people are worried about this. You're all coming and asking me, can people get saved in the tribulation? Can people get saved in the tribulation? Oh my goodness, can people get saved in the tribulation? And I don't blame you for asking it. It's a great question. 
Well, look what the Lord does. In addition to the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, how about this? And 150 years ago, nobody could figure this out. In fact, when I was a kid, you couldn't figure this one out. He's going to give power to two witnesses. And they're going to prophesy 1,200. They're going to prophesy for three and a half years. Now, the big debate here in the Christian world is which three and a half years? Some believe it's the first half of the tribulation period. I probably lean that way. But some people believe it's the last half of the three and a half year period. Whichever way, listen to this, the Lord is going to give power to two witnesses. And they're going to prophesy for this time. And then this is key. They're clothed in sackcloth. Now, what is sackcloth in the Bible? It's always a, um, uh, a picture of mourning and repentance humility and repentance. What do I think they're teaching or preaching or prophesying? I think they're preaching the gospel. They're clothed in sackcloth. Then you get to chapter 4, and it gives you a hint. Who are these people? Who are these two witnesses? Well, there's still a big debate, folks, so we're not going to solve it tonight. But if you don't know Zechariah 4, which we'll turn there, turn there. If you don't know where Zechariah is, you know what you should do? Look in the table of contents. But it's real close to where the New Testament is. It's right at the end of the Old Testament. It's Zechariah 4. There's this vision in Zechariah 4 of the lampstand and the trees. Did you know this? It's a really strange vision. Look in verses 2 and 3. When you get there. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I'm looking and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. And there are two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me saying, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said, don't you know what these are? Nope, don't know. So he answered and said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Who's Zerubbabel? He's the person who leads them back after the captivity, to rebuild, right? Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. I bet you know that, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountains, etc., etc.? And the hands, look down in verse 9. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall also finish it. Then you'll know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, for who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord. You got all that? Then look up here. Uh, then he answered me, in, or look up in verse 14. So he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Who is that two? Uh, it's his priest, Zerubbabel's priest, Joshua. So many people believe... I'm not one of them, <laughs> that the two witnesses are Zerubbabel and this Joshua because of this. But I don't think that's the point. What I think the point is, is that the Lord wants you to know whoever is out there prophesying during the time of the tribulation, these two witnesses, it's just as if in Zechariah 4, they're connected to the trees of olive oil, which is a picture of the person and work of the life-giving work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is just boom, flowing in and through them to stand up and to be a bold witness in a world that hates their guts with a 
And when I say world now, listen, when I was a kid, the world would never see this. But you can see it because you can watch wars go on right now. You could, we have everything. We have CNN and, you know, whatever you watch, Fox or whatever. You have all of them. You have satellites. We can watch everything. And here the whole world, including on TV, is going to be at odds with them. Not all, you know, not the brothers and sisters. But, but it's as if the Holy Spirit is just flowing through them to stand up and be bold and witness and to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ in a world that hates them. Isn't that great? That's what's going on here. That's why we need to know Zechariah. So who are these people? Well, there's some other guesses, and you, you know them, probably just from reading it. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth. Sounds like somebody we know. It's a guy named Elijah, and if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These ones, these two, have power to shut down heaven. You know this. That's what started the whole thing with Jezebel and Ahab. He prayed for a drought. James 5 says, don't you think, I'm paraphrasing, but I love this. Don't think James is anything, or excuse me, don't think Elijah is anything special. You're a person just like him. You pray too. But it also talks in James 5 about how he shut up the rain. How many years, by the way? Three and a half. But good guess. But what's the point is, another three and a half. It's interesting. Anyway, they have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as they often desire. And that sounds like Moses, right? So many people believe just like James and just like Moses in the Exodus, the play, that these two people are Elijah and Moses. There's some other theories in here. Uh, one theory is it's, of course, Elijah, and the other one's Enoch, because those two people didn't die. They were translated to heaven, and so they haven't died yet. One of the reasons people object to it being Moses, the Bible tells us it's appointed once to die, and then the judgment, so what would Moses have to die twice, but I don't know. That doesn't really work so much because some of us here, I'm convinced. I'm just convinced. This is my own uh, opinion on the tape. This is my own opinion. You take this for what it's worth. I don't think some of us are going to die. Why do I think that? Because I think the Lord's coming really soon. I think he's coming really soon. And if the Lord doesn't come, we will die and then go to be with him. But if he doesn't, or, but, but I think it's close, man. Okay, that's my opinion, though. Is that clear? That's my opinion? Okay, all right. What did they tell you in pastor school? Don't give your opinion so much. So I'm trying to guard against that. Okay, so who are these people? These people are maybe uh, Elijah and Moses. Uh, maybe it's Zerubbabel and Joshua. Maybe it's Elijah and Enoch. But look what these people do. They stand up within the power of the Holy Spirit when anyone wants to harm them. Now listen, what is the one thing these two witnesses know, or maybe a couple things that these two witnesses know? You know, one of the things about getting lost and almost dying in the Rocky Mountains with my wife was go back to something you know. Go back to the place where you knew, or the, the landmark in our case. We had to go back to a landmark where we knew, but it's a, uh, it's a lesson for us in the Bible. Go, when, when things are tough and you're scared and you're frightened, go back to the thing that you know. And see here, these two, 
Elijah and Moses, or whoever you believe they are, whoever these two witnesses are, listen, they go back to the thing they know. They're empowered by the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And they know, because we're going to read it here in a minute, that they're untouchable until the Lord calls them home. You realize that? That's the same with you. you you're, you're appointed to die, but you're not dying until you're appointed to die by the Lord. Do you understand this? And so until that time, here are these two witnesses, same with us. They just lay it all out on the line. Empowered by the Spirit, not in their own strength, but just empowered by the Spirit. They go back to what they know. They know that there's going to be harm against them. The Lord Jesus has told us there will be tribulation in this world. But they go back to the person and abiding in the work and walking in the Spirit and going out and telling people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what they do. They go back to what they know. They know that they've been called, so they have to do it. That's the safest and best place to be, even though it seems like it's a harmful place to be. That's the best place to be. Right in the middle of the tribulation, they go back to what they know. The Lord has empowered me to do this, and he loves me. That's what they know. And they're his, and they're not going home until the Lord says they're going home. They are going to go home, but they're not going to until their work is done. We'll read it. They know this. And they go and they go, well, okay, we're right out in the middle of where people are harming. And, but, but I know the Lord is going to help us and he protects us through the fire that comes out of their mouths. And we have this power to, to pray so that no rain falls. And they have power over waters through their relationship to the Lord. There's miraculous things that can happen. You understand, folks, maybe you don't see, uh, you know, the Monongahela turn to red. But the miracle is that you get to share the gospel of Christ and see people's hearts changed. So don't be shy about it. Of course, if you're at a place and they've called you to work, go work as unto the Lord. But when you get that coffee break or you're at the Christmas party, it's fair game, folks. It's fair game, especially when somebody asks you. See, you, you can do it all the time. Why don't you cuss? All you have to say is, do you really want to know? Now, if they ask you, why don't you cuss? Well, yeah, I really want to know. You don't get in trouble for that. They asked you. Why do you always have a smile on your face? Why do you feel so joyful all the time? Why do you look so joyful? You want to know? All you have to say is that word. Now you got them. Don't be shy. We're coming to the end, in my opinion. But actually, it's the beginning, so don't be scared. <laughs> well, here, they, they, they go back to what they know, that they're loved, that the Lord's not going to shut it down until he shuts it down, that they can pray to the Lord and miracles will happen. And we can pray to the Lord and miracles will happen. People's hearts will be changed. So listen, why do I say you're not going home till the time you're going home? Because in verse 7, it said, when they finish their testimony... It was their appointed time. The Antichrist descends out of the Abuso, this bottomless pit. He's going to make war against them. I've already read you the verses. We've read them together, right? He's going to set himself up. He's going to make war. He's going to switch on them. He's going to shut down their sacrifices. They're going to make them war, overcome them, and he's going to kill them. In fact, in one place, the Bible tells us that the uh, Jews are going to run to the hills. It's going to be so awful. But here they are, and they're just doing their thing, God's protected them, and then they're killed. 
And their dead bodies are going to lay in the street of the great city. Which spiritually, listen to that, listen to this. What is Sodom? Immorality. What is Egypt? Bondage to sin. Actually, in Ezekiel 2, it says it's where harlotry originated. You know, I don't know if that's just a way of speaking, but, but there's bad stuff going on. And Jerusalem now, the city of God, is now associated with this. Which tells us something about Israel and Jerusalem. As much as I love Israel and the people of Israel, the Jewish people, and I do. Folks, they're sinners just like us. And the point is, it's not because Israel is so great that God chose them or that the Jewish people are so perfect that God chose them. No, 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 no. It's to show you that God has grace and mercy in his choosing. Israel's not the container of God's love, Norman Geisler says. They're the conveyor of God's love. They show God's love to the world. But here... Look, Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. It's almost as if, like, how could they do that? That's where the Lord was crucified. And yet, there are people who need Jesus just like we do. When also our Lord was crucified, then those from the peoples, tribes, tongue, and nation will see their dead bodies three and a half days. For three and a half days, this is going to be all over the news. 150 years ago, when I was a kid, there's no way this could happen. You're going, this, come on, is the prophecy... Oh, was I a kid 150 years ago? Mm. Uh, well, that's kind of true. But, <laughs> but you understand what I mean. When I was a kid or even 150 years ago or 100 years ago or 75 years ago, people would look at this and say, come on, how could, how could you see their dead bodies for three and a half days? Oh, man, the cameras will be just boom, right there. Right? Because remember what has already happened. The rapture has happened. So people know something's up, but they can't quite put their finger on it, and now over in the epicenter of, of, of religious stuff, according to the world, all this stuff is happening, and boom, these two that couldn't previously be killed, finally killed at the, you know, at the request or uh, at the command of the Antichrist, this great statesman. This will be all over the news, folks. And not allow their dead bodies to be put in graves. And those who, this is unbelievable. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another. Because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. By the way, people in the uh, school, uh, inductive Bible study school, what did Beck say at the beginning of your teaching, right on your first? Context, context, context. This is a side note. Dr. Dar Donald Barnhouse says, one Christmas, he went into the store, Hallmark, not Hallmark, but some card store to get a Christmas card. And that verse was in a Christmas card. They've taken it completely out of context. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice and make merry and send gifts to one another. Cut off. You got to read. Context, context, context. Isn't that weird? But here, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and send gifts. It's so, it's so... Um, sick. But turn with me to 2 Thessalonians again, chapter 2. Go back there. These books that uh, give us so much about the end times, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, look in verse 10 and verse 11. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, 
because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send a, a strong delusion that they should believe the lie that all, they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had. What did they have? They had pleasure in unrighteousness. They, even when they were confronted with the truth, you ever had somebody confronted with the truth and they're like, I'm partying, man. Okay, I get it, but that's more important. By the way, that was my life for a long time, so I'm not pointing fingers, but uh, uh, that's reality here in the last days is that people are going to be love unrighteousness so much more, even when confronted with the truth, so that when these truth givers are murdered right in plain sight, they'll clap and rejoice. Why? Because they're being tormented by the gospel. That's what it says there. This message torments those who live that way. It torments them. Pray, pray that the Holy Spirit would have impact on the hearts of those who are tormented by the gospel to change that to that place where their heart is prepared. That's good soil. And that they would come to know the Lord instead of being tormented. Here, right on CNN, right on Fox, right on all the channels, you're going to have people in the streets, yes, clapping and thanking whomever they thank, being so uh, uh, happy that these two have died. Well, that's not the end of the story, though. After the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice come from heaven, saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. Are, they, are you going to, after the rapture has happened? Listen. And now they've got them, the ones who are tormenting them, and then they see it right on CNN. Whew. What will they be thinking? They ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. And in the same hour, there is a great earthquake. We see this often. The judgment of God. By the way, at the cross, there was an earthquake. Because it was the judgment of God. And there's going to be this earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. And in the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed. And when you go to the old city and see how compact it is, you're going to know that's real. That could happen easily or more. And the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. And there's a big debate in the commentaries. Does that mean people came to know the Lord? Some people believe that. Some people believe these are just people who never quite got to the place where they could give their life over to the Lord. They gave glory to the Lord. They knew it was from the Lord, but they still didn't give their life to Christ. Sad. And they say here, the second woe is past. But hold on to your hats, he says. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Then, this seventh angel, this is... The seventh angel, it's sounding. And there's going to be, as we read, great joy. Do you remember uh, when the seventh seal was open? There was great silence. Here, there is great joy. And there were loud voices in heaven. You know, just, you could hear people just celebrating and talking and praising and glorifying the Lord. The, the loud voices in heaven as the seventh angel sounds. And the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms 
of our Lord and of his Christ. Many people believe in the Greek that is actually saying are becoming kingdoms. The kingdoms of the world are becoming the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. You know this, right? We've talked about it several times. Satan currently is the God of this age. The Lord reigns and rules from heaven, but Satan has, in a sense, rule over this world. God still reigns spiritually, even today, but there's coming a time, and we're reading about it now, where he's going to come and rule physically and overtake the one who rebelled against him, Satan. And Satan knows it, by the way. So as he's trying to take as many people with him as he can. But here, the kingdom of this world are becoming the, or have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. The hallelujah chorus, right? Handles hallelujah. That's from this. And he shall reign forever and ever. Which means he's going to reign past the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom's a thousand years, but he's going to reign past that. He's going to rule and reign past that and it forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones, this church, they fell on their face and they worshiped God saying, what did they say? We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty. By the way, I'm going to go back. Time out. This is important for you to know. This is one place where people who believe in a mid-trib speak. They say, well, wait a minute. The kingdoms of this world are now have become the kingdoms of the Lord. That's where the transfer happens. Uh, the two people went up right here. This is where the tribulation or the rapture happens. Did I say tribulation? If I did, I meant rapture. Well, what I would say is this is a way of speaking. It happens many times in the Bible. In fact, in Isaiah 53, and maybe your most famous uh, description of that, it says that he was, it doesn't say he will, he will be wounded for our transgressions, does it? It says he was wounded for our transgression. And yet it's written 800 years prior to the time of Christ. Oftentimes, when we're talking about the promises of God, God, through the Holy Spirit, speaks as if it's already going to happen because God's promises will happen. So he often does this. So this doesn't mean the kingdoms of our, this doesn't mean a transfer right here. This is that it's becoming because uh, it's a deadlock promise that it will happen. That's important. Mid-trib people uh, talk about that right here. I want you to know that. Well, they say here as they worship God, we give you thanks, O Lord uh, God Almighty. By the way, that's called propleptic language. Propleptic language. Speaking as if it's already come to pass. Okay? Okay, I'm just trying to teach you here, as I learned too. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come. Because you have taken your great power and reigned. Listen to this. You know, there's several places where we find the elders in the church, uh, the 24 elders, falling down and praising the Lord. In Revelation 4, they praised him and they talked mostly about how he was the creator. In Revelation 5, 9 through 14, they praised him and they praised him for his uh, uh, duty or function as redeemer. And here in Revelation 11, 16 through 18, they praise him because he's a conqueror and a king. Well, man, do I love that one. That appeals to my, I don't know what, 
my, my, my part of my life that loves the movie The Gladiator. That's what that appeals to. Because you see all of this injustice. You see all these people being hurt or abused. And you just keep saying to yourself, oh, Lord, please take care of it. Well, he's going to take care of it. We give you thanks, oh, Lord, the one who is and was and who is to come because you have taken your great power and you've reigned. Listen, John, through the Holy Spirit, listen to this, is being led back to what he knows. You're on an island. You've been serving me. Humanly, you would say to yourself, if anybody deserves a break, Lord, it's me. I'm 90 years old, 100 years old. I've been serving you since my 30s or whatever, 20s, whatever he was, 15, you know, whatever he was. I've been serving you all these years. I've served you clean and good and pure. Lord, can't I just, you know, go out and get on the country club and just, why, why, why am I on a rock island in prison? See, people say that stuff. Notice what the Lord does. He shows them, he shows John through these elders. You thought you were in the bad place, but I was reigning all along. I had you there for a purpose. You were important to me there. I needed you there. I knew what I was doing. I was reigning and ruling you thought I wasn't, but I was. That's what he's saying. I, you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations are angry and your wrath has come. Do me a favor. Turn to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm, folks, that you really should, we, we all should just study and know. We should know this. It's very messianic. Why do the nations rage, verse 1, and the people plot a vain thing? The king of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords. He who sits in the heavens, listen to this, shall laugh. <laughs> the Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. See, that's messianic. I'll declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll give you. It flips here as if Jesus is speaking, the Messiah. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance at the ends of the earth. Listen, here it comes. We're witnessing in Revelation 11 the fulfillment of Psalm 2 verse 9. <laughs> and you shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And when you go back, because you have taken your great power and reign, the nations were angry and yet your wrath has come. What do you mean your wrath has come? Well, he's going to pour out now his wrath in seven bowls. It's already there, but more's coming. That's what it means. In the time of the dead, that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Now, there's a ton here. I'll go real quick. You see a fulfillment here of Psalm 2, verse 9. But we're, uh, 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 there's a time in which the dead are going to be judged. There's many judgments. You can go to John 5. It talks about the resurrection of the... Uh, uh, of the just and the resurrection of the evil, right? We know that. There's a couple of resurrection. There's 
There's judgment. There's all kinds of judgment. Some people believe this is just a judgment that allows people who are tribulation saints to get into the millennial kingdom. That might be true. But you understand there's also judgment that you don't want to be at. It's later in Revelation 20. It's called the great white throne judgment. If you've surrendered your life to Christ, you won't be at that. That's where God judges the damned. But folks, you're going to be judged. I'm going to be judged. There's lots of judgment in the Bible. We're going to be judged based on what we were uh, given. We're going to be judged at the Bema Seat judgment, not for salvation. That's handled by the blood of Christ. But you're going to be judged. I'm going to be judged based on the things that mattered for eternity. And you, you can read about that in 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 3 and Romans 14. It's all there, that beam of seat judgment. Well, anyway, you have this uh, uh, overcome or this fulfillment of the prophecy of Psalm 2.9. You have the, uh, this talk about the dead being judged, whether that's into the millennial or uh, the other judgments that are spoken of in the Bible. And also the rewards, the beam of seat judgment. Get it? It's all right here. And those who fear your main, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. It's just like, boom, just a big, you know, just dump on us of the whole program of God right there. As, because why? Because they're praising and they just want to get it all out. It's just such a mouthful. What do we do in the middle of the tribulation? We go back, uh, when tribulation hits now, we go back to what we know. Oh, boy, I learned that a couple weeks ago. And also, but, but, but then also to just lift up the Lord in praise. Okay, last thing. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. Look, did you notice that this chapter started with the temple and ends with the temple? Why do you think that is? Why, why do you think that he would start with the temple and end with the temple, it's because he's doing the same thing. He's writing to people that need comfort and strength. He's writing to people who need comfort and strength. And the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, I'm going to go through it. Bear with me. I'll stop at 825. Sarah, I'll stop. <laughs> I'm kidding. See, this is the whole deal, man. This is the whole enchilada right here. He, he leaves it, it. He bookends it. See, the whole story of the Bible from beginning to end is how we secure the presence of the Lord or how the Lord secures for us his presence. That's a better way of saying it. Way better way of saying it. How does the Lord secure his presence for us? The Ark of the Covenant, where is it? What happened to it? Man, if you study that story, you're going to just be totally blessed. Totally blessed. God told Moses to construct it in Exodus 25. In Deuteronomy 10, he asked God, I believe, to take the crumbs of the first set of tablets that he threw down when he got mad and the new tablets, and I believe he put both in the Ark of the Covenant. So he constructs this Ark of the Covenant, which, by the way, is wood on the bottom, gold on the top, speaks of Jesus. And the Lord says, put in it those tablets, the ones where you got mad and, struck and threw it down because there was an orgy going on when you were coming down the hill. Put those in there, but also put 
the new one's in there. Here, here, here's something else that we learn in Hebrews got put into the got put into the uh, ark. Aaron's rod. Aaron's rod. Think about what was in Aaron's rod. Or think about the story of Aaron's rod, Numbers 16 and 17. Court, remember the rebellion we talked about when, when those people rebelled against Moses and his people, right? And uh, basically what the Lord said was, oh, by the way, those people got swallowed up in the earth, remember that? <laughs> but then later another group of people came and God said, fine, here's what you do. Get 12 rods from each tribe. We'll stick those Rods down on the ground. We'll stick Aaron's there. And in the morning, we'll see what happens. And in the morning, what happened? Aaron's rod, what? Budded. Budded. Listen, by the way, how do you know somebody has authority in the Lord? They're fruitful. They're not ogres who lord it over you. They have the fruit and the fragrance of Christ. That's interesting. But anyway, listen, out of the rebellion... You rebellious people, I'm going to remind you, put that in the, put that in the uh, Ark of the Covenant. What else was in there? Oh, manna. Manna is one of my favorite stories. I mean, can you imagine every morning you wake up and there's food on the ground and it goes away by noon. And, you know, after about the third day, you start complaining. And God gets mad about it. Remember that part? So what, did, what else is in the Ark of the Covenant? Manna. But here's what's amazing. He said, cover up this box with the mercy seat. In other words, in Exodus 25, he said, make sure you shut the lid. Don't go in there. I'll meet you at the mercy seat, at the top where the gold was and the cherubim. He told Moses, the only way I could meet people was at the mercy seat. Why? Because blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. And if you look in Leviticus on the Day of Atonement, how many times did they sprinkle blood on the Day of Atonement? And, and how many places uh, did they uh, sprinkle blood on the mercy seat? Seven. If you count where Jesus bled from, seven places. So what the Lord is saying, listen to this. Is this amazing? You want to be all perfect and right and, you know, just a perfect Christian and you smile all the time and everything's so good and you put it all on Instagram and you, you work out and you look great and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you have a Range Rover and, oh, man, everything's going hunky-dory for you. This is so fantastic. The Lord tells us, listen, all your screw-ups, just put them in the box. Lay them upon the Lord. And then, listen, cover it up. Where the blood's been sprinkled, where it's been taken care of. And he says, don't look back in. Don't look back in there. And why am I telling you the, that don't look back in there part? Because if you follow the story, remember this thing got moved several times. Do you remember that? As they're going into the land of promise, the unbelief, uh, unbelieving generation has gone. And in Joshua 3, this is so amazing. I know I'm going long. But he says, I want you to go for it. He says, when the Ark of the Covenant moves, he actually says, doesn't say go for it, but it's the same language we would say, go for it, go for it, follow. But then he makes them follow for about a half a mile. Give room to the Lord to work. They go in. It, it remains there for several years at Shiloh. Philistines, remember, real quick, I got a point. Philistines start messing with them, start beating the, the Israelites. They pulled into... They, they take the Ark of the Covenant. They stick it in there with Dagon. 
Dagon, their god, falls down. Do you remember this? This is in 1 Samuel. They prop it back up. It falls down every night. They learn that instead of focusing on the problem that you have, I think this is the lesson of this, focus on bringing the light of the Lord into your life. The bad things will chip away. So there it is. But here's what I wanted to get to. In 1 Samuel 6, 19 through 20, the, the, the ark finds its way to Beth Shemesh. Some of the people there remove the mercy seat and they look in. And the Bible tells us 50,000 people dead. 50,000 people dead. And we look at that and we're like, whoa, what's going on? I mean, God's making an emphatic statement. He's saying, listen to this. I've been merciful to you. Don't put yourself back under the law and look into the law and measure yourself by performance. No, you measure yourself by faith in me because if you measure yourself that way, you'll die. It'll cause death. In fact, if you treat other people that way, folks, people at home, if you start to start pointing your fingers and treating other people in a legalistic way, it'll kill you. It'll kill others. It can kill churches. You just got to watch yourself because the Lord says, I'll meet you at the mercy seat. The blood, it's the blood, it's the blood, faith. I could go on and on. I got more about the Ark of the Covenant, but I won't do it. I'll stop here. But what, here's what I want you to know. Oh, by the way, I don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is on the earth, but I know one thing. The Bible tells us heaven is a picture, or heaven is the reality of what God made as pictures down here. There is this Ark of the Covenant in heaven, whether it's spiritual or not. And it's seen in the temple. God's going to be dealing with us in mercy. And he does deal with us in mercy. And what I want you to see is that in between all of the tribulation, when you're going through the times, when you feel like death. And you feel like everybody's against you. And you feel like there's nobody that understands. And you feel like uh, the whole world's against you. Listen, the Lord just puts two big pillars up there. Right at the beginning, right at the end. And he wants to remind you. It's not about all the activities. Remember, the main thing that the main thing is. How's that saying go? But whatever. Is you and I. In communion. <laughs> you don't believe me? I'm going to read this to you, and I'm going to pray. And you all know it. You all know it by heart. Jesus said this. It might be the prettiest language of the Bible. I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. And every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Here it comes. Abide in me, and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can let you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. 
It's about the presence, folks. You know what it's about? It's about getting up in the morning. And yes, do a two-year plan. Do, a, do it right in a row. Don't do like I do. <laughs> but whatever you do, if you jump around or if you go right in a row, don't read it to check off that silly little box. Read it to find the Lord. Read it to commune with the Lord. Ask him questions. Talk to him. Ask him about your day. Have him help you about your day. Tell him about the hurt you're feeling. Tell him about the things you're feeling. Tell him about the triumphs you're feeling. Listen for the response. He'll do it in his word. It's about his presence. It's how we survive in tribulation. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you so much. What a blessing it is to go through your word. And I pray because I know that people are hurting right now. There are people maybe even watching here right now that are at their wit's end. There are people here in the sanctuary at their wit's end. There might be people standing behind the pulpit who's at his wit's end. Lord, we need your presence. We need your communion. And we are so thankful that we can and do have it by the blood of your son. And that you've given us your Holy Spirit to empower us for ministry and life so that we can bear fruit that glorifies you. Help us to do it this week. Help us to be ones who commune with you and stay off our stupid phones. Stay off of the entertainment. Give it a break and just spend time with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.